Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I want you to go with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. Turn to Acts chapter 9. I want to also let you know as you're turning there, next week we begin a brand new series called Jesus Said What? And Jesus Said What? The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Um, We've done similar series to this, at least I have in my own ministry um, in years past, but I've never, um, I'm going to take some passages, and Pastor Chad as well, some passages um, that are challenging, that are confrontational from the lips of our Savior. And this is a great opportunity all month long to take some invites out at the Next Steps table. You can invite some people to join us, and uh, we'll find out that even the most difficult things Jesus said are actually life-giving if we obey them. And uh, Jesus is the greatest communicator of all time. He is not a teacher come from God. He is God come to teach. That's who Jesus is. And it's going to be a great, great month. So just encourage you to pick up some invites on your way out today, and, uh, and we'll begin that next Sunday. If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 9, what a joy again to be together. I want to read a lengthy passage of Scripture. If you'll follow with me, you can certainly follow with me on the screen or your Bible if you'd like to do that as well. I'm going to read about 20 verses. Read about 20 verses. Acts chapter 9, begin with me in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, Christianity was indeed called the way. I love that because the way signifies a a process. It's a journey. Christianity, in fact, is not a destination. It's a journey. Jesus is not the way to heaven. Jesus is the way to the Father because the gospel's emphasis is not on a destination. It's on reconciliation. He's the way to the Father, to be in relationship with God. And notice that the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, this is Saul of Tarsus, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. We've heard it our whole life that he was struck down from his horse. The text doesn't say that. Probably so, but the text doesn't say it. So we can't develop a theology off of silence. So he falls to the ground, Paul, Saul does at this time, and he heard a voice saying to him, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Notice that. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And Jesus then says to this man, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, Damascus, and you will be told what you must do. Continue on. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless. They were confused. They were hearing a voice, but they saw no one. Isn't that what like true conversion experiences are? The people who know you the best don't know what you're actually looking at. They just know you're looking at something beyond yourself. And they're confused, and they're hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is Saul, the powerful. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. He said, So the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, go to Straight Street, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, that Saul of Tarsus is praying. Interesting, and in a vision he has seen a man that it's named Ananias. He's coming in, and Ananias put his hands on him so that he would receive his sight. And Ananias said, Lord, I need to explain some things for you, okay? You haven't obviously considered the full ramification of me going and doing this to a murderer. And he says, Lord, I've heard about this man, 
how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He's killed people. He's locked them up. And here he has authority from the chief priests in our city to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You need to underline that. We're going to come back to that. You will sh- I will show him. Not you will show him, Ananias. I will show him. We'll talk about maybe how God shows him that. And now Ananias went this way and entered the house and laying his hands on this back, sh- this back room of a house on Straight Street. He- Straight Street, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, he has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from the eyes of this Saul something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and he was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, and then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that Christ is the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, I, in these moments, humble myself before you. I ask very clearly that you would let every agenda in this room be put aside, except the kingdom agenda for every heart. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Would you now seize us, apprehend us? Just don't leave us the way you found us this morning, God. Don't do that. Transform us. Change us. Help the truth of your word to be internal and internalized in our lives. And Lord, we need your anointing. We're desperate for you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Everybody sit. I think it's very easy for us to underestimate the supernatural, complicated realities that go into any specific conversion experience. Conversion, of course, being one who is in death and brought to life, one who is in a kingdom of darkness being transferred to the kingdom of light. Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people better. He came to make dead people alive. There are some super complicated realities that surround conversion experiences. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus, of which you and I just read, who would later become Paul, is atypical in the sense that he was majestically confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus. He was struck down. He was struck blind. A voice from heaven spoke. He was blind for three days. Someone was sent to him through a miraculous vision. That is unusual in that sense. However, If you take Acts chapter 9 in the greater context of God's saving ability, that God undertakes supernaturally, that every conversion experience, yours and mine and everybody else's, is a supernatural, miraculous work of God into which several key elements must come together in that majestic recipe of grace. In that sense, Acts 9 is very typical of all of us. So it's somehow untypical or atypical in the sense of the majestic nature of it, but very typical in that every conversion experience has that supernatural work. All of the recipes for conversion. I think what happens for us is we fail to comprehend the deep undercurrents of deep spiritual power that have gone into every conversion experience. There are two, what I would propose to you, equal and opposite errors, I suppose, as it relates to bearing fruit. By the way, we're in the fifth week of a series called Bear Fruit today puts a bow on this series. The greatest way to bear fruit is that we would lead others to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, what happens, there's, there's, there's two major errors, errors, I should say, uh, when it relates to this whole area of conversion. One error is to say, I have done it. To take some pride in, in ourselves when we lead someone to Christ or when we pray with someone to receive Christ to say, I've done it. We take some personal glory in it for ourselves. We, of course, scripturally, we want to stay away from that. 
I heard about a woodpecker that went and landed on a hillside one day. And as he flew to the hillside, he landed on the side of a pine tree. And he drew back his head to strike the pine tree. But unbeknownst to him, the whole hillside had been planted with detonations from a mining company. These detonations from a mining company wanted to open up the mountain. And just as he drew his head back, someone a half a mile away pushed the depression lever and blew the whole hillside. Well, it blasted this woodpecker halfway across the county. He's not semi-conscious. He stands up and he realizes half of his feathers are blown off. He finally collects himself and he limps home to his wife. He crawls in the tree that night and he says, baby, you won't believe what I did today. There, there can be a kind of arrogance and an arrogant presumption that takes some sense of ownership in ministry. But on the other hand, what I find in American churches is the opposite true. It's not us taking credit. The opposite is in reaction against that, we creep into what I call a false humility that leads to a congregational spiritual lethargy. We move into a spiritual apathy as it relates to soul winning, and we say, if God's going to save somebody, let God save them. If God's going to do it, let God do it. But what that does, that error fails to comprehend the reality that God somehow, in his infinite wisdom, condescended to humanity to actually have the nerve and audacity to call us ambassadors for Christ. He's called us joint heirs with Christ. He's called us to spread the aroma of Christ wherever we go. See, soul-winning church is not some optional idea for some crazy Christians. Soul-winning is not some optional idea, although George Barna tells us that 98% of conversions in America right now are brought to Christ by somebody who's known Christ less than two years. Less than two years. It's not an option for some crazy Christians or some nut job who's just recently been crazy delivered. Soul winning is not for super Christians. Soul winning is who we are. It's the very character and the nature of Christianity. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. And in the story of Saul, in the story of Ananias, in the story of Damascus, it really is the story of us. Because it reveals to us as much as any account in Scripture of who we really are. Now listen, there's so much in this text. Acts 9, 1 through 20, there's so much. And I'm so excited to be with you today. So I have to greatly resist the urge to preach every angle of Acts chapter 9. I have to strongly resist that today. There are a few important things that I believe the Lord would have us see in this story. Three things, in fact. Number one, the supernatural, prevenient grace of God. The supernatural, prevenient grace of God. What do you say, Craig? In every dynamic encounter between an individual and the living God, there are what I call unbelievable rivulets tributaries, small streams of God's grace and current moving in and moving around and moving through and moving surrounding and moving ahead of and coming behind of and completely enveloping every encounter with Christ for an individual. This is in Wesleyan theology what we call prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. Grace. The Old English, where we derive this term, is called preventing grace. Now, we don't use the word preventing grace anymore. The reason we don't use preventing is in the English in the 17th century, preventing means to go before. It means to come ahead of. Like one runner is preventing another runner to the finish line on October 20th in our half marathon. You're preventing them from winning by you coming in first. That's preventing grace. It's grace that comes 
ahead of us. Now, we don't use preventing that way today. We changed the word preventing in the English language in the last 300 years. We've changed it to mean hinder or stop. But prevent in Old English was mean to go ahead of. It's grace that goes ahead of. Like he prevented me in the door. He went ahead of me. So preventing or what we call prevenient grace means grace that goes ahead of. It's grace that goes ahead of even when I know that grace is operative in my life. It's grace that's operating in my life when I don't want grace operating in my life. It's grace that's operating in my life when I don't know and recognize it as grace. When I don't know what it is. It's grace that comes ahead of what I am able to identify as any meaningful contact for Christ. You can understand then why, for me, there is hardly a doctrine in Scripture that is more precious to my heart than that of the doctrine of prevenient grace. The doctrine of grace that comes ahead of conversion. Grace that comes ahead of one surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because what prevenient grace means is that God himself, by his own supernatural hand, is undertaking to see that the lost are brought into the household of faith. God is moving, God is searching, God is seeking, God is wooing. The courting Holy Spirit is moving everywhere in planet earth. He's moving in the worst places, he's moving in the best places. He's moving in the highest places, he's moving in the lowest places. The Holy Spirit who courts is constantly searching everywhere to add to the church those who are lost and without grace, without hope. Before Ananias ever got to Saul, before they even even spoke, I suspect that when Ananias went home that night, he said, you won't believe, honey, what I did today. I just blew the whole hillside off. I won Saul of Tarsus to Jesus Christ. Is that what he did? Goodness gracious, no, he didn't do that. Did he win Saul of Tarsus to Jesus? No way. Not in a million years. Not in a million years. How do you know, Craig, that God is pursuing you for conversion. Can I give you a couple quick signs? If you're streaming live today, listen. If you're here, listen. A couple quick signs of how you know you have the goads coming against you. Somebody's been praying for you. Can I give you a couple signs that you're being pursued for salvation? Can I give you a couple signs of what it means to have the prevenient grace of God operative in your life? First of all, you come to the realization you've been blind. When you realize you've been blind, now Paul's blindness, he was struck with blindness. It's given to us as a picture of People separated from Christ. Now, there's two forms of spiritual blindness. They're on your card there in front of you. There's irreligious blindness. That's not what Saul has. Saul does not have irreligious blindness. He has religious blindness. We'll talk about that one in a minute. But the first type of blindness, irreligious blindness. You know what that is? That means you believe your way is better than God's way. And so you pursue what the Bible calls sin. What's the middle letter of sin? I, because sin is about I. It's what I want to do. I want to follow my rules. I want to live my life. I want to do what I want to do. Sin really defined as I. I'd rather be in charge because I probably know better than God. And usually when you first live this way, irreligious blindness, things are great at first. You didn't understand. Things are awesome. I, I used to, in our youth group, we used to have a little a, a country preacher used to come by and he would always tell us, as teenagers, he used to preach, he said, sin ain't fun. And I wanted to stop him every day and say, well, you ain't doing it right because I'm having a blast. Okay? You, you ain't doing it, sin right if you ain't having fun with it. But then you wake up one day and you realize you've got a whole string of broken relationships for the last six years. You wake up one day and you've got an understanding that you're really unhappy, if you'll be honest with yourself, that you can never meet the right guy. I meet so many young professionals, they want to jump from city to city because they think the next city is going to answer what they need. The next city won't answer what you need. The next city won't minister to the issue of your soul. It won't do it. You wake up and realize, I've been blind. 
I've been treating God like he's the enemy, and he's not. Some of you this morning, you may be in that category, and I pray that you would stop this weekend and stop kicking against the goads. The second form of blindness is religious blindness. You think that you can be good enough to earn God's approval. If you just try and keep the good rules good enough, then God will accept you. Let me give you a quick theology lesson. Why that is blindness. When Adam and Eve sinned, two things happened. When we sinned, two things happened. First of all, spiritually, we died. When Adam and Eve sinned, we died. Our love for God died. We began to worship all kinds of things in the place of God. That's why John Calvin said the human heart became an idol factory in Genesis 3. That means that the human heart is an idol factory. It constantly conjures up more idols to replace God. That's what the human heart is. The unregenerate human heart is an idol factory. The result was that God's laws to love and to serve him, they they became unnatural to us. They become burdensome to us. They become wearisome to us. And so what we did is we started resisting God's laws. And even when we do try to keep them, we chafe up against them. Think of it like a metal bar. I've used this illustration before. Mom and dad, look, if I took a metal bar and I bent that metal bar with all the strength that I had and I made a kind of a U and I let go of that bar, two things would happen, either One, that bar would snap back into its original place. Or number two, I would bend it into a use so much that it would snap. Here's what I've learned. Mom and dad, if you try to get son or daughter to try to change by using laws and rules and regulations in your household, but you don't let the grace of God and the gospel really change their heart, you can bend that all you want into submission, but the moment they get out of high school, they're going to snap back into their original heart position. They're going to snap back into 87% of people in evangelical faith leaving the faith by the end of their freshman year of college. Why? Because we don't use the gospel to transform hearts. We use law to try to change people. Law can modify behavior, but law cannot transform hearts. Law cannot transform the human life. So one of two things happen. It breaks back into position, or number two, you bend it so much that it snaps. And that's young Johnny who says to you, you know what? I can't wait till I get some freedom. And they snap. They act like the kid that they were not growing up, raised to be. They act like somebody that, that they did not grow up in the household. So why are you saying that it must be grace? Because law, law can't separate, initiate and change us from a place of spiritual death. Second thing happened when we, we sinned, we became naked. Now listen, did you know in reality before we sinned, we were naked? It's just we couldn't recognize we were naked because Athanasius said we were clothed in the love and acceptance of God. And then when the clothes of his love and acceptance came off, we recognized we were naked. Now it's shame, now it's guilt, now there's something wrong. So what do you do when you feel naked? Any normal person that is. What do normal people do when they feel naked? They try to clothe themselves. You know what we turn to? We turn to good works. We use the good work clothes, which means that really our good works are all done for self-justification. Can I just say it that way? You've never had a good work apart from Jesus Christ that has been motivated by anything other than your own heart. That's all good works are. They're self-justification to prove ourselves that we are somebody else. They're prove ourselves that we are self-interested. You know, Spurgeon, see it, Spurgeon, the great Charles Haddon, he, he said it like this. He said it, he called it the, the illustration of the horse. He said there was once an old pauper. He was a, he was a poor farmer. He, did, he worked for 40 years in his farm, and he loved his king so much, he went to the king's jurisdiction one day, and he said, you know what, I've grown this four-and-a-half-foot carrot. And he, he went up before the king and he presented that four and a half foot carrot. And he said, king, because I love you so much, I want to show appreciation to you. And the king was so touched by the gift. He said, you know what? I have some land around where you farm. He said, I'm giving all of that land to you, Scots free. And he left weeping. Well, when he was standing before the king that day, a nobleman, a little richer guy was off to the side. And he was so flabbergasted by what happened with this pauper that he said, if the king will be moved to give land for a carrot, 
What will he do for a horse? So the next day he goes and gets a thoroughbred horse and he brings it before the king and he says, King, I love you so much. I want to show appreciation to you. And the king was not touched. The king looked at him and said, Yesterday that man gave a carrot to me. Today you gave a horse to yourself. This is what good works are. We come before the Lord and we don't do good works because we love the king or others. We do it because we want more for us. We want a greater gift. We want something to be bestowed on us. It's not something done in, in purity. It's self-justification. It's what Luther, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, he said he called it the evil of our good deeds. We all know we need to repent of sins, but we also need to repent of the bad motives for our righteous acts. See, what, what, that's where Paul was. Paul was right there doing evil deeds. Good works done from a spiritually dead heart as an attempt to self-justification, always leads to weariness. And it always leads to constant comparison. How am I stacking up? And when you live a life of comparison, comparison leads to either pride or despair. Pride when you're doing well, despair when you aren't. And it's usually in cycles. And you're in pride and despair because you're comparing your life and your righteous acts to everybody else's righteous acts. Jealousy then turns into hatred. Hatred turns into fear. They threaten me. Hatred and fear turn to violence. That's why the most religious people on the planet are the meanest people on the planet. Unbelievers are not near as mean as churchgoers. Because self-justifying religious people always leads to violence. Religion creates mean people. That's why when atheists say, man, they're so mean, I just agree with them. I say, yeah, religion creates mean people, but the gospel doesn't. Because grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's giving us the power of his new life and a new heart. And when Paul experienced that, it changed his heart. Here's three quick things you see on your card that dominated Paul's ministry for the rest of his ministry once he was converted. Three quick things. You know your eyes have been opened. Number one, a sense of wonder instead of a sense of entitlement. You get a sense of wonder. What are you saying, Craig? Instead of a sense of entitlement and pride, Paul had said his whole life, well, of course God accepts me and approves of me. I'm better than anyone else. Now Paul is filled with wonder saying, I can't believe God saved me. I can't believe God saved me. Elise Fitzpatrick, she wrote a book called Give Them Grace. I gave you a couple weeks ago. She said, we need to spend time laughing at our Christian experience. She said, laughter? She said, what's the joke? She said, I'm the joke. The fact that God saved me. I want to tell you something. Maybe many of you are not going to like this as your pastor, but I'm going to tell you anyways. I'm 32 years old. I'm about to turn 33 years old. I want to tell you something. I'm kind of a disappointment to myself. Can I confess to you, I thought that I would be a little bit further in my Christian journey by this point in my life than I am. I thought by this point I would love to pray all the time. I don't. I discipline myself to pray, but I don't wake up every morning wanting to pray. I'm really a disappointment if I really look at myself. I struggle with self-control. I struggle with materialism. The jealousies that are in my heart as it relates to ministry flabbergast me sometimes. My love for God sometimes, half the time, feels like sometimes it's cold. Feel like you're walking in a wilderness. I started reading on my own computer the, the letters of John Newton. John Newton is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, and he said these words. He said he was in his 70s. He said, as an old man, by this, th Paul, th by this point, I thought I'd be different. I thought I would not be jealous. I thought I would not be controlled by money. But he said, my love for God oftentimes is cold. And I thought, this is me. 
And he said the reason that God allows us to continue to struggle all our life with indwelling sin is because he wants us to grow ever more amazed at his grace. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. David Martin Lord Jones, DMLJ, he said, the ultimate test, look at your card, of our spirituality is our amazement at the grace of God. The ultimate test of our spirituality, how do you measure spirituality? Most of us, we measure spirituality by how patient we are, by how much spiritual fruit we bear, by how long we pray, by how much we share Christ. Paul, he kept the law. Paul was measuring his spirituality about how well he kept the law. The problem is that on this side of heaven, we have our sinful flesh, which is always at work in us and will constantly be discouraged if we look within. God always wants us looking outside of us to the finished work of Jesus, not inward to the, to the progress of righteousness or sanctification that we have come to. It's to look outside of us to what Jesus has done. And so God often allows us to struggle so that we ever grow more wondrous at the grace of God. See, most of us, you see, think of Christian growth as getting to a place where we don't need the grace of God that much. Isn't that right? Look how patient I am. Woo, look how generous and kind I am. No, on this side of heaven, spiritual growth is not getting to a place where you feel like you don't need the grace of God. It's getting to a place where you're ever more wondrous of it every second of every single day. That's spirituality. Paul, from that point, would be filled with wonder. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief, not whom I was chief, not past tense, I am chief. He laughed at himself. And so now he became characterized by transparency. Everybody say transparency. From this point in Paul's life, he would always admit his failings. I'm the chief of sinners. The law tells me to do one thing, I do another. The law tells me not to covet, I covet. I, I find a law that is in with, within me, the evil that is present within me. He said in Romans 7, he, 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 you see, understand this. Paul doesn't want you admiring his flesh. He wants you running to his Savior. Can I just say, I'm tired of listening to preachers and teachers who make me think that they have it all together all the time because they can't help me. And I can't help you if I'm not honest about the evil in my own heart. I can't help you. After that, Paul became a man characterized by graciousness and generosity instead of hatred and pride. What do you say, Craig? The man who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, that same dude was a murderer. The guy who wrote love chapter, which has nothing to do with marriage, but it's read at every marriage ceremony, you know what I'm talking about? You know that passage? That dude was a murderer. Paul said in Romans 9, I would die and go to hell for you if I could, Israel. Think of that. Previously, he had bound his enemies in chains, hauled them to prison, and told them to go to hell. Now he's looking at those same faces and say, I would gladly go to hell for you. That's the gospel. That's the power of redemption. Listen. Those who believe and behold the gospel will become like the gospel. If you will believe and behold the gospel, you will become like the gospel. The power of prevenient grace. Several years ago, my wife and I, we were getting ready to launch a service at our previous church. We were launching a 9, 9.30 service. It had been a long process at a church that um, is in a, very much in transition. It's 109 years old. It's the longest standing Pentecostal congregation in North America. And we were in Cleveland, Tennessee at the time. And I remember we had to go down to Hamilton Place, Chattanooga one night. And I don't remember if she went in with me or if you did go in with me, babe, but we went into Babies R Us. And uh, we, I think maybe we were getting ready to have uh, Marley. It's 2012. And I walked up to this bin right in the middle of the store where there were discounted items. And I'm not kidding. This worker comes up to me. She stands on the other side of this discounted bin. 
And she looks at me, and the way she greets me, her opening line, she looks at me, and she, I said, you know, how are you? She said, I'm very unhappy. I mean, that was her opening line. Like, you don't have to have great spiritual discernment to see God's open up a door for ministry, right? Smell the Folgers. I said, why are you unhappy? She said, my husband and I have been struggling. I said, what, what's going on? She said, we had a child die years ago. She said, I can't get over it. I said, I can't get past it. And um, I thought to myself, standing there in that store, why would this lady, of all people, who's an employee, walk up in her time that she gets a break, walk up to the bin that I'm standing at, and she, out of all the things she could have said, good day, how are you doing, how are you? She said, I'm unhappy. For the next, I think it was 45 minutes, I shared the life and the death of Jesus. I shared the gospel right here in the middle of this Babies are us. I shared the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I shared the essentials of the gospel. I shared about eternity. I shared about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of this time, it must have been 45 minutes had passed by. She looked at me. By this point, we're standing next to each other, no longer on either sides of the bend. I'm holding her hand. She looked at me and she said, are you just selling this stuff or do you actually believe it? She said, do you believe this stuff? I grabbed my phone and I opened up my Bible app and I said, ma'am, I've based my entire eternity on what I've just told you. i got no other option. I've based my entire life off of what I just told you. I said, I want you to go home tonight. I want you to kneel down at your bedside. And I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to say to the Lord, say, Lord, I really want to see my child in heaven one day. So would you save me? Would you be my Lord? I said, ma'am, you do that. You live for him. You find a community of faith. Now I looked at that lady and by inspiration of the Spirit, I spoke to that lady right there in her eyes, and I said, that child that you had, that child's years was not wasted. At that point, her demeanor changed. Tears came flowing up in her, welling up in her eyes, and she began to cry. She said, why did you say that? She said, that's the number one fear that I've had and haunted me since he had died, that the years my son had were wasted. I said, in God's kingdom, honey, nothing is wasted much less the preciousness of your child's life. And I said, the next time you see that child, if you'll pray that prayer tonight and you'll follow Jesus by the maturation process that heaven grants us, the next time you see that child, he won't be a little three-year-old. You'll see a whole, well-mature child of Abraham. I said, honey, you got nothing to fear. And she grabbed me by the hands and she said, tonight I'm gonna pray that prayer. I walked out of that Babies R Us and I told my wife, I think you were in the car. I told my wife, were you in the store? I told my wife, what? had just happened. People say, that's soul winning. That's not soul winning, folks. That's strolling out into the garden one evening and picking up golden nuggets that are falling off the vine, and that's all God's asking for us to do. They're all over Woodstock. That's not soul winning. That's picking up fruit that's ready to be picked up, harvested. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The penetrating power of breathing your grace is leading people to the saving knowledge of Jesus. God's preparing the way. Do you think Ananias saved Saul? God's working on this man, Saul of Tarsus. He's squeezing him in the pressure cooker of prevenient grace. You call it whatever you want. You can call it preventing grace. You can call it grace. Modern Christians call it conviction. That squeezing pressure of God. Can't God heat it up? Woo, God heats it up quickly on somebody. Especially if they got a spouse that prays. Man, I just feel sorry for those people. I'm telling you, I feel flat out sorry for those people. 
pressure cooker? I've been ministry 12 years now. Can I just say, I find it downright humorous when people get under conviction. Is that bad? <laughs> I do. When I, 12 years of this, you can just see them squirming. Oh, they won't look at you during the whole message. I mean, it is unbelievable. It's written, guilty, guilty. I mean, like right across their forehead. They're squirming. They're doing all that they can. They won't look at you. They get out of the church and... <clears throat> It's too hot in there today. They're angry. It's too cold in that church today. I don't like big churches. I don't like small churches. I don't like praise teams. I don't like hymns. I don't like praise songs. I don't like worship songs. I don't like hymnals. I don't, I don't like this. I don't like the translation that preacher used. Is he going to use a Bible or is he going to give some words off a screen? Listen, sister, listen to me. Next time you go out of church and your husband starts ranting and raving like that, don't say a word. Just cross your arms and smile. Say, mm-hmm. And then in your heart say, sick him, God, sick him, sick him, prevenient grace. Sick him, sick him, bite him, bite him, bite him. That's all they're doing. See, when that squeezing starts, when that prevenient grace starts, please understand when God heats it up, the boiling begins, and nobody likes conviction. You don't like it, I don't like it, and Saul didn't like it. But conviction is the way that God needs the heart. God's conviction is God's hand massage on your heart to get you ready for your heart to encounter in one millisecond the bride, the, the, the groom of heaven. For a moment of contact when heaven invades your heart. That's what God does. By the way, when someone says yes to me, when I ask the question, hey, are you ready to follow Jesus? And someone says yes to me, I always find myself saying, you do? <laughs> like, you want to accept Jesus? Is that wrong? God, you ready to follow Jesus? Like, yep. Yeah, what? Is it wrong that I'm engaged and surprised by it? I'm like always flabbergasted. I'm like, why? Like, why are you ready? Like, what, what brought you to this point? It's the basics of the gospel. If anybody ever tells you, yes, I'm ready to follow Jesus, if their heart is ready, it's because someone touched that heart before and then someone touched that heart again and then someone touched that heart over here and then someone touched that heart over here and then someone touched that heart over here. Why? Because visible love from the people of God opens invisible hearts of unbelievers. When we touch the heart here and we keep touching a heart here and we touch the heart there, then God begins to put the pressure cooker. It's called prevenient grace. God putting on the pressure. That guy who makes one last stop at the gas station before committing adultery on his wife and he looks up at the billboard on Highway 92 and it says repent and believe the gospel. That's called prevenient grace. He may follow through with his plans but he ruined his plans for the rest of the night. It is totally and utterly ruined. Why? It's called prevenient grace. That man who leaves church furious on a Sunday and angry and he turns on the radio and the preacher's preaching the same thing the guy in the church was saying. That is the, that is the prevenient grace of God. Those things aren't coincidences. They are engineered by almighty God. I was preaching a few years ago at North Cleveland Church of God, the church we came from. I'll never forget this as long as I live. I was preaching on the God of crisis, the one who meets us in our crisis. The anointing was strong that morning. I was up preaching. I never forget. We called people forward. We prayed for people. The Spirit of the Lord ministered to people. I thought that's all that God was doing this morning. I get into my office the next day and I get an email. An email from a lady who lives just outside of Nashville. She said, you won't believe what happened. And she began to write for me what took place. She said, yesterday morning at about 9 o'clock, I got in my car and I began to leave Nashville. She said, I was done. I've been in a marriage for 25 years. It was never going to turn out good. The man continues to be abusive. The man continues to live his own life. 
life. I won't go into all the details. She said I was driving. She said I came over Mount Eagle Mountain on 24, and I turned on the radio, and we streamed live the sermons. We streamed live. While the sermon was happening, it was happening on the Christian radio. And she said, I began to be so convicted by the Holy Spirit. I pulled off in, in South Pittsburgh into a Walmart parking lot. And she said, I sat there with my, my head in my hands, and I began to weep uncontrollably for my husband. She said, before you ever got to the altar, I started that car back up, and I drove right back north or back west on 24, and I went back home to give my marriage a second chance. What's happening? It's called the prevenient grace of God. It's called the pressure cooker of God, the conviction of God. What does it teach us, Craig? It teaches us the infinite care and concern of God for not only one soul, but the implications of that soul in the people around them. Every life touched by God's grace is a pebble thrown, and the ripples spread out. When Ananias went down to Straight Street that night to pray with a cold-blooded murderer, you will never convince me that it dawned on him that someday 2,000 years later, a few hundred people would gather in a church in a city in a country that he never knew about and would preach that story out of the Bible. You will never convince me. It would never dawned on him that the man on whom he would lay hands would preach and write most of the New Testament, would establish the Gentile church around the world, and would shape Christianity more than any one single human for centuries. It never crossed his mind. Therefore enters the second greatest element of every conversion experience, and that's an obedient church. The prevenient grace of God, number two, the obedient Christian. I try to put myself in Ananias' shoes. He's an unknown, unsung hero. Ananias, by the way, in Scripture is never mentioned again. This is not Ananias and Sapphira, a different one. He didn't show back up. I want you to think of this for a moment. A vision comes to a man who is a saint and says, rise, go down to straight street. Saul of Tarsus is there. He's blind, so he can no longer hurt you, but go. I want you to lay hands on him, and I will heal him. He's no longer to be efficacious in hurting you because he's blind. This is the guy who came to arrest you and kill Christians, take you back and change to Jerusalem, but go pray for him. I don't know about you all, but I can relate to Ananias. Anybody else in the room will relate to Ananias? Ananias begins to explain this to God. Lord, surely there are some implications and ramifications of this that you fully haven't considered yet. You ever do this with God when God strikes your, your heart right there in the salon? You ever done this? You ever done it when you're going through the checkout line at K. Roger? Yeah? You feel this urgency to go share with somebody else? Why would it occur to us at all that there may be some aspects of this that God Almighty who spoke light into existence hasn't really thought through yet? But isn't God infinite in his grace and patience? He just very calmly and gently explains it to Ananias. He says, no, do this. Listen, every time I get in one of these arguments with God, about halfway into it, I got in one this week in the public place here in Woodstock. About halfway into it, I realize I'm in very bad shape here. I'm in real bad shape. I'm not going to get out of this because he actually knows that person's heart that he's telling me to talk to. And I can say whatever I want to say about whether or not they're ready to hear it or not, but he just wants me to go say it. He wants me to open my mouth and say it. And he very calmly, patiently explains to Ananias, I have a plan for him. He will preach my gospel before kings. I'm going to use him mightily, and I'm going to show him what things he must suffer for my name's sake. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And Ananias goes in obedience. Can I just say something right here? Nothing. This man, Ananias, goes in obedience, not in great faith, not in great understanding, 
just raw, naked obedience. He simply does as he is told. And Jesus is looking for some people who will do what he tells them to do. Whether you have faith, whether you're stirred, whether you feel like it's going to happen or produce fruit or not, you do as you are told. I believe one of the greatest supernatural elements in that mystery of conversion is unlocked in the power of the church when you just obey. Can I ask you a question? Who is on the other side of your obedience? Whose life and lives will be affected because you are obedient to do what God asks you to do? You do not have to understand fully to obey completely. You don't have to understand all ramifications to obey everything God has said. Listen to me. The obedient church is the church that God will honor. The obedient church is the church that God will will know the anointing of God. The obedient church is the church that will know the unction of the Holy Spirit. The obedient ministry is the ministry that will gain the unction of the Holy Spirit in our city. We we in our modern day, our charismatic, you know, spirit-filled movement, we, we throw faith at everything. Faith that. If you have faith this and faith that. Everyone wants to talk about faith in the spirit-filled movement. Faith without obedience is absolutely dead. It will never unlock the power of God. Ananias could have sat there in his house and said, well, Lord, we thank you for that word that Sunday morning. Woo! We confess Paul is saved. We confess Saul is saved. You give those things, you grant those things that are not as though they are. So, Lord, we by faith, we confess that Saul is saved. We claim it by faith and God would have said, you know what? I'm going to have to find somebody else who will do what he's told. I'm not asking for you to claim anything. I'm not asking for you to do anything right now other than get your tail up, walk down to Straight Street, open your mouth, and do what I tell you to do. I'm not looking for any fake declaration. I'm not looking for any promise by me. I'm not looking for you to make a confession or anything. I'm asking you to rise and go where I tell you to go. I'm asking you to say what I tell you to say, and I'm asking you to do what I tell you to do. That, my friends, is the key that unlocks the power of God. It's not faith. It's obedience. It's obedience to do what he tells us to do. Obedience is what wins the anointing, folks. You want anointing on your life, there's a huge difference, is there not, between gifting and anointing. We got a lot of gifted people today. A gift entertains a crowd. A gift will will gather a whole big crowd. A gift will fill a room. A gift will stir up people, right? A gift does a lot of things, but the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27, it is the anointing that actually breaks chains. It is the anointing that breaks yokes. It is the anointing that sets people free from bondage. And so what happens is we have a generation that does not want to be crushed, that does not want to obey. We want to be paraded. We want to be put out in front of people. But the reality of it is, is that we as a nation can continue to have all kinds of gifted people, but no anointed people until we get to a place that we're willing to be obedient. Obedient. We need a generation in our church and in our city that's willing to go into the dark room where the crushing happens, where obedience happens, because that's where the oil comes. Where in the world do you make new wine? You put grapes in a vat, and they're crushed. God's not looking for more people to parade in America. He's looking for some people that are willing to be crushed in America. He's looking for some people that were willing to be obedient in America, who would allow the anointing of God to run freely in and through their life. If we could just learn to be sensitive enough to the nudge of the Holy Spirit to really obey. When you're standing in the barber shop, you're standing in the salon and someone's over there, someone's about to work a miracle on your head. And you see somebody reading a nice modern piece of great literature work, Cosmopolitan Magazine. 
And something just like that, just like that, says sit by her, walk over, go over, sit by her, and just tell her God loves her. And what do we do? Well, I don't know this lady, God. Or if we do go, we'll just say, I had this unction. We won't dare say God told us. Well, I just had this little unction. I don't know this lady. That's crazy. If we could only just learn to do what Ananias did, just obey. There's no use to explain it to God. He knows it already, already. Well, she, she's, she don't know. You don't know about her husband. I know her husband, Craig. Well, we don't know if she's ready. I created her, Craig. Well, you don't know if, if, if she's ready to receive it in the salon. I put her in the salon, Craig. Here's what, you don't want to know, you want to know what I find so miraculous? I'm telling you, in my 12 years of following Jesus, when I obey, I have not had someone not bear witness to that one time. People bear witness to what you say if you obey, I promise you. I've not had it one time. I've not had people one time ever in the history of doing any kind of outreach or evangelism say no to me if truly the voice of the Holy Spirit has asked me to go. I've never had it. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying I've never had it. It's miraculous. Because the penetrating power of prevenient grace has preceded us into every corner of the globe. If we could just convince foreign missionaries of this, there's no place in the world where you are going to take God. God's already there. He's just waiting on you to show up. If we could get convinced soul winners and Woodstock to understand this, there's not a door you will knock on where you are going to take God to that family for the first time. The Holy Spirit seeped in underneath the door. He snuck in through the window cracks. He has, he has penetrated into the hardest hearts in our nation. There's no person, I don't care wife, I don't care husband, there's no person related to any person in this room today that has not been touched by the prevenient grace of God. There's nobody. The problem is you don't know which step in the process you are going to be, do you? The only thing you know is when God sends you in, you fulfill the part of the story God has for you, which leads us to the third point, and I close. A suffering Christian. Where do you think Saul of Tarsus got converted? Was it in Straight Street in the back room? Was it in Damascus on the road, lying, confused, in dirt? I want to ask that question. Where did Saul of Tarsus get converted? That's a great question. I say neither. I say neither. I don't think Saul of Tarsus got converted on the road. I don't think Saul of Tarsus got converted in Straight Street. You know where I think Saul of Tarsus began to get converted? I think his conversion began in Jerusalem when he stood at the back of a crowd arrogantly holding the cloaks of those who hurled stones that smashed the face of a young Christian to a bloody pulp. And in his arrogance, Saul of Tarsus watched Stephen, the first Christian martyr, get killed for his faith in Jesus. And the arrogance of Saul's heart was saying, go ahead and kill Stephen. He deserves it. And as he stared on that young man, Stephen, Stephen lifted his hands. And he said, Jesus, don't hold this sin to their account. Have we heard that before? Sounds just like Calvary, doesn't it? He said, don't hold this sin against their count. Where's my arrow? And the Bible says at that moment, when he made this prayer, this Bible says they stoned him. And just like Calvary loved, the Bible said his face 
took on a countenance of angels and he fell asleep and something went right into the heart of Saul. I mean, just like that. Prevenient grace stabbed him in the soul. And something penetrated that old hard heart. That young Christian's death with more power than any sermon, more power than any conference, more power than any witness, the willingness of that Christian to do as Jesus died. Every great revival of God in the world is always fertilized with the blood of martyrs. And let me, you listen to me. Every great resurgence of the Holy Spirit in any church, every great resurgence of the Holy Spirit in any city and community is perpetrated and abetted by Christians who love not their own lives even to the death. That's where great resurgence comes. I pray all the time, y'all. I pray all the time. I say, Lord, let me live for you. Let me live for you. But I asked myself last night, do I have the nerve and audacity? I wonder if I have it in me to pray. God, I may never be the great apostolic witness of America like Paul that will win my entire generation to Christ. But if my death would find that apostolic witness, then my death and the means of my death are yours. And I didn't have the power to pray. do you want your life to be a witness? The great power that is released in an obedient church is multiplied by a million in a suffering church. When that church is willing to suffer, the outrages, the deprivations, and the deaths of the martyrs, look, I'm going to give you a little kingdom math. You ready? A little conversion math. You see it on your card? When those three come together, the prevenient grace of God plus the obedience of Christians plus the suffering Calvary love of men and women who are sold out to God, then the world will look at us and see the countenance of angels. That's conversion. The world will see true believers. Some years ago, I was preaching in Planachina, Brazil. Show this picture. They took me to a festival. I didn't know they were going to do this. This is an outdoor festival in Sobradinha, Brazil, right outside Brasilia. Now, in Brazil, they do church every day. They would put me in a car at about 4 p.m. They would have me go preach at church. I'd walk in right at the end of worship. I'd preach my guts out, go get in the car. They'd take me to the next church. Some, some nights, I'd preach four and five churches. They were staggered start times. And I did this for about, I don't know, 11 days, 10 days, something like that. And I got done preaching this one church and hopped in the car. My translator was with me. He said, I can't go to this next one with you. His name was Guy Nobriga. And I said, Guy, well, what's going to happen? He said, well, you're going to go preach at this church. They didn't tell me, Greg, that I would preach in an outdoor festival of which nobody knew they were there to hear the gospel. Okay? So you got white dude. You got, you got American dude who speaks English and no Portuguese except Ayoma Comero Bife Brasileiro. That's all I could say. I go into this church and I, we pull up. And when I get out of the car, I say, hey, what's going on, man? He said, oh, well, you, this is the festival. It's, it's, it happened this week. It came up on my Facebook feed this week, July, four years ago, July. So I said, okay, what's going to happen? I got to tell you, I was nervous. I was real nervous. Because they weren't going to set me up. I was going to go stand on this loading dock. It was like a loading dock where they, un, where they loaded out all kinds of kegs of beer and cases of alcohol. And I was supposed to get the microphone. And I was supposed to start preaching the gospel. I stood up on this loading dock. 
There's alcohol all around me. The interpreter was different, but my same guy. He stood off to the side of me. I was nervous. I climbed up on the stage and I started to preach. And right before I started to preach, this translator looked at me and said, don't you dare say anything offensive tonight with all these people on the side of a street like this. I said, all right. He said, preach. So I preached God's word. I, I, I was probably 30 minutes. I preached on God's love and gospel. I felt like that night I needed to preach on believing the Lord Jesus Christ and you'd be saved, you and your household. And I got up there in front of those people and I was waiting on the translator and I said, in the last day, it won't be Buddha that descends on the great white throne to judge the living and the dead. I said, in that last day, it won't be Muhammad or Allah that descends on that great white throne judgment to descend the living and the dead. And I looked over at him and he shot his eyes at me. He cut his eyes at me like, I'm not going to translate that. I said, we're standing both before God. You're going to translate that. I said, both of us are going to stand before God. This is a true story. I'm with my friend, Fernando, and he's off to the side. I'm like, Fernando, can you do a little bit harder intercession right here, buddy? I mean... I'm preaching. Some people are still moving around. When I said those words, you could feel the tension in the air, right? I looked over to the side. There were people walking down the street. Right over to my left right here was just a busy street. I asked for the invitation and two people came forward. Two people. I prayed with them to receive Jesus, shared the gospel with them again. Right when as I was finishing praying, this one guy who was listening to us behind the trees that was the street, this one guy who obviously was homeless, dealing with homelessness, came walking up to the stage and his eyes, all the eyes in this whole public arena were boring in him. And he raised his hand right here off to the right of the stage and he spoke in Portuguese and said, what's he asking? He asked him, he said, does God really love me? And I got down on my knees on that little loading dock and I looked at this man in the face and I said, God loves you more than you could ever imagine. Would you translate it to him? And everybody in this festival stopped and boring their eyes into him, staring at him. I saw his body tremble and tears started strumming down his face. I could tell God was dealing with this man. Everything in me wanted to just stop it. And the Lord just said, don't, don't do it. And it was silent. It was in those moments preachers are uncomfortable with. And the Lord said, don't meddle in this moment. I'm doing something. So I just stood there. And that man, once he heard that translation, he raised his hand. He took one step forward. And when he took one step forward to receive Christ, Ten other people streamed from the back down to the front and began to fall on their knees and confess Jesus as Lord. And I thought, what just happened? What meaneth this? I just preached my guts out for 40 minutes. Two dudes walk forward. This dude takes one step off the street and ten people come forward and it made sense to me. Here are all these people waiting to see real Christianity, not some white man who gets up on a stage and proclaims a foreign Christ. They're waiting to see a guy who they know in their community who is homeless and is without hope and he comes forward and he says, this is my life, this is my eternity, I want to surrender to God and when they saw that, they said, that's the Christianity I want, that's the Christ I want and they came forward and they, I believe, listen church, that's what the world world wants. I believe the world is waiting to look upon us. Say, that's what I want. When Saul of Tarsus saw that in the life of death of Stephen, I believe Jesus took his pen in hand and he opened the Lamb's book of life and he said, hey heaven, get ready. We're about to write down Saul of Tarsus. It'll just be a few minutes now because there goes that sword right into his heart. You ready? Watch this. And nice. there's a guy over there He's seeing a vision. You come in to lay hands on him. He's going to come to you. Revenient grace. 
hatred to hatred and Saul was gone. And he said, I'm an ambassador for Christ. Can I tell you, church, God says to us, I will give you fruit without limit if we will be these type of people. I'm not talking about a church growth plan. I'm talking about obeying. This is New Testament Christianity. Everybody say obey. If we will obey, if we will crucify ourselves and crucify to our own pride and do as we were told, God will explode this place called dwelling place. He will. God will explode it. God will explode it. Prevenient grace. Obedient Christians. Suffering Christians. And the world will see angels. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.